our goals for our talk today and our entire time this weekend. Our number one goal is to know God better. If we go away from here today having failed to come to know God better in some way, then I think our time may have been wasted. Because our ultimate goal is to come to know Him better. That we may experience in our knowledge of Him, life eternal, is that we might know God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. And as we come to know Him, we want to experience healing of our mind and the development of Christ-like character, deepening confidence, trust, and faith in God, and become an intellectual Christian who is capable of discerning the right from the wrong. Kate came to see me. She was depressed, anxious, distraught. She was feeling pressured. She didn't know what to do. You see, her husband had just cheated on her for the sixth time. The first, the first five times it happened, the same events transpired. The first time she caught him cheating, she threw him out. He ran to her pastor, fell down on his knees, crying and confessing to the pastor his sin, telling him that he had asked Jesus to forgive him his sin, but his wife has thrown him out. The pastor picked up Kate's husband and took him over to Kate and said, Now look, Kate. The Lord Jesus has forgiven you all of your sins. Can't you, can't you see your way clear to forgive your husband of his? And she took him back. And the same thing happened the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth time. The, each time he, he was caught, she threw him out. He went to the pastor and cried, confessed that he had asked Jesus to forgive him, and the pastor asked Kate to take him back. This time, she was in my office. And I pointed out to her, that it was extremely important that she forgive him in her heart so that she could experience healing, so that she wouldn't spend the rest of her life in bitterness and anger and resentment. But I also asked her a question. I said, and when you forgive him in your heart, does that change him? No. See, myth number one, forgiveness means restored trust. Myth number one, forgiveness means restored trust. If Kate forgives her husband in her heart, does that turn her husband into a trustworthy human being? No. No. no not exactly. Not necessarily. No. What will, re- what will be required for her to be able to trust him again is not for her to forgive him, but is for him to become a trustworthy human being. Okay? So Kate forgave him and threw him out and wouldn't let him come back. <laughs> there are two types of distrust. There are two types of distrust. There's the, the, the person who is malevolent, the person who is evil, the person who has it in their heart to, to, to exploit, to do us harm, to take advantage. Osama bin Laden toward Americans would be somebody we really don't want to trust. Right? We can't trust on that level. Most of us, unfortunately, when it comes to relationships, get stuck on that level of trust. And therefore, we end up like Kate getting hurt when we shouldn't be trusting. Because there's another level of, of distrust. I want you to imagine that you have a, a child who's six years of age, and you're the treasurer of your church. And after the weekend services, you've collected the mon- monies, the funds, and you've got $5,000 in cash that need to go to the bank on Monday morning. And your six-year-old says, 
I'll be glad to take that to the bank for you. Would you let your six-year-old... Now, your six-year-old has is, is been a faithful, loyal, loving child. There's no evil intent. The heart, the heart intent is to do good. Would you let your six-year-old take the $5,000 to the bank? Because you don't trust them with the responsibility, correct? It's not that you think they're evil. It's not that they're against you. They have no, uh, no malevolence in their heart towards you. They want to do right, but you still don't trust them. Because they're not mature, because they can't handle the responsibility. There are many adults that we deal with in life who function like six-year-olds. And what gets confusing is then after they make a mistake, they can with great sincerity give you their confession, ask you to forgive, and promise that they will never, ever do it again. And if they were on a lie detector, they would pass the lie detector because there is no intent to do harm. There is no intent to do evil. There is not plotting against you. They mean what they say at the moment they say it, but they have not developed mature character so they can't actually carry out what they say. And so one of the questions you have, and Kate's husband, by the way, was in this category. Kate was constantly, Kate's husband was constantly insecure and worried about what people thought of him. He didn't, he couldn't stand up to people and set healthy boundaries. He, he got pushed around easily by people who put demands on him. And he constantly sought the attention and affection of others to help him feel better. And after he would be caught, he, he, he felt guilt. He felt bad. He wasn't intending to harm Kate. He just didn't know how to stand up to himself. And so one of the questions you have to ask, You remember the story of the scorpion and the frog? Scorpion comes up to the frog and says, will you give me a a ride across the lake? Frog says, no way. If I let you on my back, you'll sting me and and I'll die. Scorpion says, well, I wouldn't sting you. If I sting you, we'll both drown and we'll both die. Frog says, oh, okay, hop on. Halfway across the lake, the scorpion stings the frog. As the poison's working its way through the frog and the frog's getting paralyzed, he says, why did you do that? Now we're both going to drown. And the scorpion said, it's my nature. You have to ask the question, what is the nature of the person you're dealing with? What is their character? Not simply what are they declaring to you? What evidence have they revealed? Can you trust this person? Have they demonstrated themselves over time to be trustworthy? Myth number one, forgiveness means restored trust. Myth number two, forgiveness comes after the offender says they're sorry. Myth number two, forgiveness comes after the offender says they're sorry. Bob was angry, bitter, hurt, resentful. His sister had come over and had brought some beer and gotten him drunk. And, and when he had passed out, she had stolen his rare coin collection that he'd been collecting since childhood and left town. He was bitter. He was angry. He had problems in his relationship with his kids and wife because he was always irritable, always frustrated, flew off the handle easily, didn't trust people, always felt people were going to take advantage of him. As we talked about forgiving his sister, he said he will never forgive her until she admits what she did and asks to be forgiven. He believed that forgiveness doesn't come until someone says they're sorry. Or ask for forgiveness. It's a myth. Let me tell you about a lady at church because I want to tell you this story to show you the insidiousness of sin. Insidiousness. How it creeps in so ever so slowly. Grabs a hold of our hearts. Infects us and takes over. A lady in church came to me and she said, My daughter married a man who beats her. 
They've been married less than a year, but my daughter gets beaten frequently. Now, the lady who's telling me this, you understand, had not been beaten by the the son-in-law. She hadn't even been cursed or spoken badly to. They had very little interaction. But the lady who told me this had incredible amounts of anger and resentment and bitterness towards this man who was sinning against her daughter. If she doesn't forgive this man in her heart, you see, his sin was against the daughter, but it planted a seed in this woman's heart that if she doesn't forgive and root this out of her heart, that she will become bitter, anger, resentful, hard-hearted, and will become just like the man who is abusing her daughter. Forgiveness is the process that we go through that we are offended to root out the evil planted there by someone else's sin. If someone came to my office, hey, a longtime friend, and they walked into my office, and, and they, for whatever reason, I have no idea, they smack me, they spit on me, they curse me, and then they run out of my office, I have to decide how am I going to react to that? Am I going to forgive them? Am I going to pick up my stick and chase them down? Am I going to call my lawyer to try and sue them? Am I going to call the police to get them arrested? Let's say I choose, this is my friend, I don't know what's happened, but I love him and I forgive him. And so I just want to, want to reconcile what's going wrong. I, I, and so I start chasing after him. Hey, he looks over his shoulder now that he's done me wrong. He sees me coming. What do you think he's thinking? I'm coming to get him. And so he runs faster. Soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. Afraid of who do you think? Who do you think they were afraid of? Yeah, when God came calling, when God came calling in the garden, did they just pop out, oh, I'm so relieved it's you, woo. Or were they hiding from him? Why were they hiding from him? Because they were afraid of him, because they believed lies. God ran after, when God ran after Adam in the garden, was he running after Adam to make him pay? Or to reach out and restore the broken friendship? That had occurred. God, God has been running after mankind ever since. What came first? God's forgiveness or man's repentance? Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Which came first? God's love and forgiveness or our repentance? Another distortion contributing to myth two is forgiveness requires payment and appeasement. Forgiveness requires payment and appeasement. Another distortion contributing to myth two. This occurs because many misunderstand God. Many Christians believe that Jesus died in order to pay a legal debt, to pay the price for our sins. Anybody heard that? I wonder if I should take hands. I guess I won't. Because I'm going to ask you a question. How many, well, you know, how many believe Jesus, now we'll do this. How many believe Jesus died to pay our debt of sin? Anybody? How many believe that God forgives us our debts as we forgive our debtors? Hmm, now think that through. Somebody owes you $1,000. You are demanding payment. They can't pay. You decide to forgive their debt. If you forgive the debt, can you now go and collect the debt? If you collect the debt, can you forgive the debt? 
Well, how come we're saying our debt was paid, but our debt was forgiven? If you owed $1,000 and the man was demanding payment, you couldn't pay it. And you have a loving brother who comes in behind you and pays the $1,000 to the man paying your debt. And the next time you see the man, the man says, hey, I just want you to know I've forgiven your debt. You go to your brother and say, I mean, that guy is the neatest guy. I owed him a thousand bucks and he forgave my debt. And your brother says, what? I paid that debt. Do we see a problem with this? Hmm, which do you think it might be? Well, the Bible says in Exodus chapter 34, God speaking to Moses on the mount. These are God, one of the places we actually have God's words being spoken. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness. The Lord is forgiving wickedness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.19, quote, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13.5, that love keeps no record of wrongs. Do we believe the word? Do we believe that God is love? Why do we teach that God has a record book that he is going to judge us by and make us pay for everything that's in the book? Hmm. Did God forgive us and then Christ die to do what was necessary to save us? Or did Christ die in order to get God to forgive us? How many teach that Christ died in order to get God to forgive us? That split in the Godhead. The Godhead is one. If you see me, you've seen the Father. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish. Who so loved the world? God. Uh, God was in the Son reconciling the world to himself. Romans eight thirty one. If God is for us, who's for us? God. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his son, but gave him up. How will he not also with him give us all things? It is God who justifies. Who is it that justifies? God. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus? No. He is at the Father's hand and is also interceding for us. In other words, Christ is up there in addition to the Father working in our behalf. The Father is on your side. The Father has always been on your side. And as soon as mankind fell into sin, God started interceding. And he intercedes in two places. He intercedes with the principalities and powers of darkness, holding in check the destructiveness of the sinful agencies. He has his four angels holding back the four winds of strife. He has the chariots of fire protecting around Elijah. He has the hedge of protection as in the book of Job. God is sending his agencies constantly from heaven to hold in power the dark forces that would destroy destroy his human creation. And he's interceding in our hearts and minds. As soon as man fell into sin, in Genesis chapter 3, he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between you and my creation. I will put a desire for good in the heart. I will convict of sin. I will, do, I will reveal love. I will reveal truth. I will open their hearts and minds. I will draw. I will woo. He has been working and interceding in our hearts and minds and in the principalities and powers of darkness. God, Christ threw himself right down between us and the wages of sin. Holding in check. He is the, the great barrier holding in check the devastation that we would reap if he hadn't put himself in the path of sin's deadly destruction. Did Jesus need appeasing? 
How did he treat sinners when he was here? Does someone plead with him to be kind to sinners? Well, then is God like, like Jesus? Did God need appeasing? Where did this distortion come from? Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Imagine you have a child with leukemia. Your child is dying. You take your child for treatment. What is it you want to have happen? Do you want the leukemia, the cancer, to go into remission? You want the cancerous cells to remit back to their precancerous healthy state. Without the shedding of Christ's blood, sin would not go into remission. Without the shedding of Christ's blood, we would not remit. Our hearts, our minds, our characters, the human race would not remit back to its original perfection that God designed the human race to be in Adam. Christ came to restore us back to God's original ideal. What is leukemia? Leukemia are cancer cells. And cancer cells are cells that have lost self-control. Remember we talked earlier today when the Holy Spirit comes, we get the fruits, we get self-control, self-governance. Cancer cells are cells that operate on the me principle. Me, 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 more of me. Self-replication, self-replication, no self-governance, no longer in harmony with the laws of health, no longer in harmony with their programming, their design, just completely out of control, cancer cells. If something doesn't intercede to put them into remission, death ensues. What if you have a five-year-old child who has leukemia? And what if, if your child had gotten leukemia because uh, when, they were, when they were a young child, you had told them never play or mess with the pesticides in the garage. But your child disobeyed. And they, and they opened the pesticides and, and they even got some in their mouth and nose and it was exposure to this toxin. This toxin that they, that they exposed themselves to by disobedience to you is what directly caused their leukemia. If that were the case, if that were the case, would justice require you to let your child die if you had bone marrow that could save them? Or worse yet, since you had given them direct explicit instructions, in the day that you play with the pesticides, you will surely die. If you had given those words, would justice require you kill your child in order to be just? What would justice require if Justice is predicated based upon the law of love. God's justice is based on his character of love. And we talked about love this morning. The law of love is a law of giving, the law of beneficence. Greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend. If that is the law that your justice is based upon, then if your child, even in disobedience, has, has damaged himself and is dying and you have the means to save, what would the just thing be to do? Save your child. Thus Christ came to give himself to save us, not to pay a debt, not to earn pardon. And if you had used the words, in the day that you drink the pesticides, you will surely die, would you have done that as a threat or in order to protect, to warn and protect? And once the child has this terminal condition, what is needed? What do the laws of health require for your child with leukemia to live? In order to be just, in order to not violate the laws of health, what must transpire? The cancer must go into remission. The unhealthy, deformed cells must remit, and the only way to make that happen is a remedy and a cure. So why did God say to Adam, in the day that you eat, you will die? 
because I will be forced to execute you for breaking my rules or because you will so transform your nature, your character, that the principles of love and liberty will be purged and the law of self-promotion and selfishness will be written in. And this is a deforming, destructive principle and without divine intervention, you will die. And once we infected ourselves, once Adam and Eve infected the race with this, with this terminal condition, what was needed? A remedy and a cure. And Christ came to cure our condition. Myth number one, forgiveness means restored trust. Myth number two, forgiveness comes after the offender says they're sorry. Myth number three, forgiveness equals salvation. Forgiveness equals salvation. This myth is very common in Christianity. It comes from the belief that the problem with sin is actually a problem with God. It comes from the belief that that God is offended, that God has been angered, that God has been uh, incensed, and that, that we have to get God to be kind and gracious and forgiving again, rather than recognizing the correct diagnosis that when mankind sinned, God did not get changed. Mankind got changed. Follow it through. When Adam sinned, did his sin in any way change God? But did Adam, did mankind get changed? The problem with sin is not with God. The problem with sin is with us. We have misdiagnosed the problem as God rather than realizing the truth that the problem is with us. Think about those who put Christ on the cross. Did Christ forgive them? Now remember, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Now the one on the cross, just so there'll be no confusion, because some people say, well, see, he was asking the Father. He didn't really have the right to forgive. Well, remember just a little while before his crucifixion, he was performing miracles and healing people. And he was in a house, and the house was very crowded. And people took a paralytic to the top of the house. They, they broke away the roof tiles. They lowered the man right in before Jesus. And Jesus said, So that you might know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Get up, take up your bed and walk. Christ had the power to forgive sins. He forgave the people who put him there. Did that mean they were now saved? They were now his friends. They were now on God's side. No. Christ forgave, but they didn't open their hearts to receive his free forgiveness. Thus, they were not transformed. They were not regenerated. They were not recreated in righteousness. They were still his enemies, and they will still be lost. But they will be lost, forgiven by God. This comes from the misunderstanding of what salvation is all about. People think salvation is an issue of legal pardon rather than recognizing salvation is actually healing and regeneration. The word salvation itself comes from the root word salvo. We get words like salvage, which means taking something and put it back together. We salvage something. Or ISAV, S-A-L-V-E, ISAV, which is a medicinal anointment that heals. The plan of salvation is the plan of healing. In the Bible, it says, You shall call his name Emmanuel, for he will save his people from their sins. That word saved in the Greek is sozo. It means to heal. Imagine you just got bitten by a rattlesnake, and you've gone to the emergency room, and you said, Doctor, please save me. And the doctor says, No problem. I forgive you. Is that what you want? No, you want healing. The plan of salvation is healing, regenerative, recreating. Christ came and gave his life as part of the process to actually heal, redeem, restore, regenerate, and recreate this creation. Salvation is the process of reconciliation and bringing us back into unity and oneness with God in heart, in mind, in character, in methods, and principles. And this requires both 
forgiveness and repentance. In order for reconciliation to occur, the person who's been offended must forgive, but the offender must experience repentance, a change of heart. And when the two occur together, then reconciliation occurs, and reconciliation is what salvation is all about. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20 It says, anyone who is joined to Christ is a new being. You see, this isn't anyone who is joined to Christ is a pardoned being. No, he's a new being. Something has transformed. Something has changed. The old is gone. The new has come. All this is done by God, notice by God, who through Christ changed us from enemies into his friends and gave us the task of making other people his friends also. Our message is that God was making the whole human race his friends through Christ. God did not keep an account of their sins. And he gave us the message which tells us how he makes them his friends. Here we are then speaking for Christ himself as though God himself were speaking through us, making his appeal. We plead on Christ's behalf, let God change you from his enemy into his friend. Forgiveness alone is useless. Forgiveness alone is useless. Imagine your child drank poison from the cupboard after you instructed them not to do it. And you came and your child is there laying on the ground, frothing at the mouth, seizing. The child is is in and out of consciousness and, and says to you in a moment of lucidity, I'm so sorry, dad, mom. And you say, that's okay, I forgive you. Is that all that's needed? Is forgiveness enough? Or something more than forgiveness needed? Isn't there a healing process, a recreative, a regenerative process needed? Imagine Jeffrey Dahmer. Anybody remember Jeffrey Dahmer? The guy who was a serial murderer and took people and cut them up after he killed them and put their body parts in his refrigerator and freezer. Now, he is dead today, but imagine he was alive and in prison still. And President Bush pardoned him, forgave him legal pardon and legal forgiveness and sets him free. Would you like him to be your next-door neighbor? Why not? He's forgiven. You see, this process of thinking about what Christ is doing in us as a legal process of pardon and forgiveness comes far, far short of preparing us to live forever with him. Myth number one, forgiveness means restore trust. Myth number two, forgiveness comes after the offender says they're sorry. Myth number three, forgiveness equals salvation. Myth number four, Forgiving someone means what they did was okay. You're right. No, it's a myth. That's exactly right. This can occur because of how we speak. We often say when somebody does us wrong, that's okay. Don't we? We send messages, that's okay. If you have a little child who's told a fib and the child comes and says, Mommy, I'm sorry, that's okay. Was it okay? No, sometimes we can send, uh, we we mean well by that. We mean that our relationship is still okay. But when we say that's okay, we can put distortions in the mind. It wasn't okay. It was still wrong that you fibbed. But we'll be okay because you've repented and I still love you. We'll be okay. It sometimes occurs because there are some teachings in Christianity that suggest that when We accept Jesus as our Savior. The Father applies Jesus' record to our record and declares us innocent. I don't know if you've heard that teaching. Declared innocent. Hmm. 
Think about it. In what universe will it ever be true that Adam never sinned? In what universe will it ever be true that you and I never sinned? And if we create constructs that have God declaring us innocent, we're making God out to be a liar. God never says we're innocent. He says we're healed, we're restored, we're recreated, we're regenerated. We're back in unity and oneness with him. We've been changed from enemies into friends. We have a new heart and a right spirit. We're well again. That's what he says. And through all eternity, the records will last. The records will last through all eternity. Think for a moment about in the judgment, the concepts we have. Think you have a child who's got cancer that's spread all through the body. It's called metastatic cancer. And this child has been told by all the doctors the condition is terminal. There's no hope. But you've heard of a doctor out west who everyone who comes to this doctor leaves with a clean bill of health. A hope springs in your heart. You call. You make reservations. You've got an appointment. You take your child and you arrive at the doctor's office and you go in with the medical records. You've got the records of disease. You've got the biopsy reports. You've got the, the PET scans, the MRI scans, the CAT scans. You've got all this stuff documenting the disease. And, and you get that moment with the doctor. You hand him the record. And he opens the record and he begins taking out all the documentation of disease and sticking in blank white sheets of paper. And he hands it back and goes, now... No more record of disease. You go on home. Are you happy with that? How many have this concept in the judgment that Christ is going through the records and he's taking out the record of disease and replacing it with white sheets of paper? Hmm. But instead, how about the doctor looks at the sickness, the documented records and sickness of your child, and then the doctor gets up and goes over to your child and begins intervening in your child with interventions that heal and restore and put the cancer into remission. The records will show the cancer. The records will show the treatment. And the records will now show your child is cancer-free. Isn't that right? This is what's happening in the process. God is wanting to restore and regenerate us, and the records simply document our actual condition. Myth number one, forgiveness means restore trust. Myth number two, forgiveness comes after the offender says they're sorry. Myth number three, forgiveness equals salvation. Myth number four, forgiving someone means what they did was okay. Myth number five, forgiveness leads to greater vulnerability. Sheila came to see me with a long history of depression, mood instability, anxiety, sleep problems, inability to relax, panic, nightmares, inability to trust and fear of getting hurt. She reported that she had been raped in college and was filled with an incredible amount of rage and anger. As therapy progressed, we discussed when the time was right her forgiving in her heart the man who raped her. But she said she would never forgive him because her anger and rage made her feel strong. And if she forgave, she would be more vulnerable to attack. And she was ready if anyone ever tried to hurt her again, she would lash into them. She believed, myth number five, that forgiveness leads to greater vulnerability. I want you to imagine that in the summer down here in Florida, you get up early one day and you go out to the beach with no sunscreen and you fall asleep on the beach around 10 in the morning and you wake up around 6 in the afternoon. Really, really bad burn. Really bad burn. 
You go home, it's so bad, you just put a, like a, a light white t-shirt on and you're, you're sitting there like this and your five-year-old doesn't know you have a sunburn and, and your five-year-old comes and jumps on your back to play. What do you do? You scream and you yank them off. Is, is, do you do that because you don't like playing with your five-year-old? No. How about your spouse comes home and, and doesn't know you have a sunburn and they come up and behind you and give you a big bear hug. What do you do? Scream and push them away? Is it because you don't like hugs from your spouse? And then somebody comes up and actually slaps you on the back on purpose. You see, the point of this is to tell you that when you're burned, you lose the ability to differentiate or tell the difference between touches of play, touches of love, and touches of aggression. Everything hurts. And therefore, you push everyone away. Forgiveness is the process of healing the burns in our hearts. Now think about the strategy. You've got the bad sunburn. You're really hurt. Would the best strategy be to figure out how you can keep anyone from ever touching you again? Or would the best strategy be to heal the sunburn? Too many people with their burns in their hearts spend their life keeping everyone at arm's distance so they'll never get touched again. Because it hurts too bad. Rather than focusing their energy on healing the damage done. Would forgiving in her heart the man who raped her actually, factually, make her more vulnerable? Would she then be more likely to leave her doors unlocked, walk alone at night in strange places, etc.? No, she's still not going to take those risks. She was still going to be less vulnerable even if she feels, and in fact, even if she forgives, and in fact... The process of forgiving allows her to enter into life less reactionary and to be able to engage in healthy relationships with the people she can trust. Johnny was a 49-year-old gentleman who came to see me with a six-year history of anxiety and depression. He was particularly frustrated because he was a Christian and believed that he shouldn't have these types of problems. He was in the 21st year of his marriage. I think that's right. 21st. No, he was actually in... I got that math wrong. He was in the 38th year of his marriage. 38th year of his marriage. But was still troubled by an event that occurred in the first year of his marriage when his wife was 16. During the first year, she had a one-time, one-night affair. She immediately confessed it to him, repented, and has been an extremely loyal and faithful wife for the last 38 years. But Johnny was still angry. Bitter, resentful, still didn't trust his wife, still lived in fear of getting hurt again. He told me that he believed if he ever forgave her, he would open himself up to being taken advantage of again. So he couldn't really forgive because he didn't want to get hurt like that again. He believed if he forgave her, it would, get, it would somehow open him up. But in reality, his failure to forgive was a wedge being driven slowly between them. We explored the myths of forgiveness, and he realized that he had never genuinely forgiven his wife. He realized the need to do it, and he began to pray that God would help him develop a forgiving heart. He asked God to give him the strength, and then he made an intelligent choice. He chose to forgive his wife, and then began acting toward her in healthier and new ways. And within a few weeks, his depression and anxiety had improved. Their marriage was blossoming again and he told me he enjoys his time with his wife more than he has in 20 or 30 years 
Myth number one, forgiveness means restore trust. Myth number two, forgiveness comes after the offender says they're sorry. Myth number three, forgiveness equals salvation. Myth number four, forgiving someone means what they did was okay. okay. Myth number five, forgiveness leads to greater vulnerability. Myth number six, forgiveness means forgetting. Myth number six, forgiveness means forgetting. Does forgiveness mean forgetting? Isaiah 43:25 I even I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and will remember your sins no more Hebrews 8:12 For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more When we study the Bible we must ask what does the Bible say We must ask from there what does the Bible mean and from there how does it apply to my life What does it say What does it mean? How does it apply to my life? So let's ask, what does this actually mean? Does this mean, as I have heard taught many, many times, that when we confess our sins, God in heaven applies the blood of Christ to our our records, and it's like magic eraser ink. Things are blotted out of the books of heaven, and it's blotted out of the minds and memories, and so our sins are forgotten from the universe when we confess them. I've heard people talk that they're looking forward in the new heaven and the new earth that our sins of the righteous will have been gone beforehand into judgment and blotted out and we won't have records in memory of the sins we've committed. Hmm, let's think about that. David, in the Bible, murdered Uriah and had an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. We know in reading Psalms 51 that he confessed his sins to God and they went beforehand in judgment. So does that mean when we talk about David and Bathsheba right now, when we open our Bibles and read that our angels are not allowed to peek? Or our angels go, what are they talking about down there? I have no idea. Did David do something that I didn't hear about? Was it wiped out of the memory? Or do they know? When we get to the new heaven and the new earth, do you look forward to the day that you will see your loved ones there? Do you expect to know your loved ones in the new heaven and the new earth? Yes, and so in the new heaven and the earth, resurrection morning, here comes David, here comes Bathsheba, here comes Uriah, here comes Solomon. Hey, Mom, will he know his mom? Hey, Dad, Uriah's going to go, wait a minute, who is this guy? I don't remember leaving you with child. Will they know? Hmm. This is a misunderstanding that comes about regarding the judgment. Satan alleges that God checks the records. And this is the judgment. Uh, You can see this described in uh, Zechariah chapter 3. In the judgment, Satan is there accusing us of all the sins we've ever committed. Some have this conception that Christ stands up and says, Mr. Mr. Snake, uh, I've checked the records here, and, uh, and David has confessed his sin. The blood of Christ has been applied, and we don't have any record. We have no idea what you're talking about. That's not what happens. What happens in the judgment is this. Christ will say, you know, the historical facts that you've just recited are true. David did those things. But they're irrelevant because David has a new heart and a right spirit. He's been transformed. He's been healed. He's been regenerated. He's been recreated in the inner man. He is no longer practicing your methods. He's coming home to me. Let me give you an example. I want you to imagine your name has come up for um, a position with the children's department here in the church. And uh, as the church board is considering your name to, to, be, to see whether you are, are someone they can vote in for this department, somebody says, before you vote on this person, 
you need to know that when they were five, they had a terrible case of, of food poisoning that caused awful vomiting and diarrhea. And it, and it got all over their mother's new couch and, and new carpet and made a terrible mess. And the church board's going to go, so? But it was gross. It was nasty. Yeah. But are they sick today? Well, no. Well, then it's irrelevant. See, the devil brings up those sick things we did. Looks back on our record and goes, well, it was gross. It was nasty. Those things we did. Yes. But are we sick today? That's the question. Have we been healed? Have we been changed? Have we have a new heart and a right spirit? Are we Christ-like in character? That's the question that needs answering. And we will all have records. Remember the, when, when the woman that, was, uh, that came and, and poured her spikenard on Christ's feet and they began sniping at her? Christ said something. Those who are forgiven much love much. If we don't remember all that we've been forgiven, we won't love as much. Hmm. In Revelation, it says that we sing a song, a song of our experience. If we don't remember, we won't have anything to sing. So what does it mean then? What does it mean when it says, I am he who blots out their transgressions for my name's sake? Oh, of course he does. But we have misplaced. We have misidentified where God wants to blot them out, where God is blotting them out. He's not blotting them out of record books. He's blotting sin out of our character. He's blotting transgression, uh, disharmony, selfishness, ugliness out of our hearts and minds. That's where he's blotting it out, not out of a book. Sin doesn't happen in books. It happens in intelligent beings. And that's where God is, is blotting it out and regenerating us in love. I want you to imagine how this whole memory thing works. Uh, you have a child who's six years of age and your child told you a fib. Do you, are you vengeful toward that child? Does someone have to plead to you to be forgiving and gracious? Or are you already forgiving the child? And in love, you begin to discipline to turn the child into a right course. Isn't that what happens? And so in your love and your forgiving attitude, you discipline the child and the child repents genuinely. Mommy, daddy, I'm sorry. I'll never tell another fib. And there's hugs and kisses all around. Reconciliation. The next day when you come home from work, your child comes running out. Daddy, daddy. Do you go... Here comes that little liar of mine. You see, it's forgotten. As far as the relationship is concerned, you don't remember it anymore because it's been removed from between the two of you. It's gone. Does that mean you have memory erasure? You have amnesia? No. So it is forgotten when it's out of our hearts, when reconciliation is incurred, when it's no longer between us. But it can only be forgotten in that context when genuine reconciliation has occurred, when the person has repented. Why do people hope for memory erasure, by the way? Because they have misconceptions about God and are afraid of how God will treat them if he actually knew what they did. Myth number one, forgiveness means restore trust. Myth number two, forgiveness comes after the offender says they're sorry. Myth number three, forgiveness equals salvation. Myth number four, forgiving someone means what they did was okay. Myth number five, forgiveness leads to greater vulnerability. Myth number six, forgiveness means forgetting. Myth number seven, forgiveness means the offender gets away with it. Sherry was bitter, angry, lifelong history of mood problems, irritability, anxiety, relationship problems, inability to relax, chronic feelings of emptiness, loneliness, worthlessness, inability to trust, always afraid of getting hurt, always afraid of getting exploited. She reported that she was molested from the ages of 5 to 12 by her uncle, but she never told 
He was never caught. He was never punished. She refused to forgive because he was never caught. Therefore, in her mind, forgiving him would mean he gets away with it. And she won't let him get away with it. She's going to hold him accountable. She understood, she misunderstood the nature of sin. The nature of sin damages the sinner. None of us ever get away with it. What happens to the sinner when he sins? He gets damaged. And when the time is right in therapy, I said to Sherry, as I do with all my patients who struggle with these issues, when we get to the point of forgiveness, and I ask them, who do you think got injured, damaged worse, you or your uncle? They always say, me. I said, okay. I said, I want you to imagine that God takes you to heaven right now. And he gives you one choice. Your choice, you can have your life exactly as it's been. No changes. You were abused by your uncle from 5 to 12. No changes whatsoever. You get your life the way it is. Or I will let you switch lives with your uncle. And you get to go around abusing little children. But you yourself won't be abused. Whose life do you choose? 100% of my patients thus far choose their own life. And I ask, why? And the light goes on and they realize, you see, when you're a victim of abuse, you may have been damaged physically, you may have been damaged emotionally, you may have been damaged psychologically, but your soul is undamaged. Your, Your conscience is unseared. Your purity is unblemished. But when you damage other people, when you molest other people, something much more precious gets damaged in you. Sin pays a wage. The wage is death. When we sin, we damage ourselves, we sear our conscience, we warp our reason, we transform our characters into more and more of the satanic mold. No one ever gets away with it. Some struggle with this because of statements in which the Bible, it seems like God is the one who is meeting out the punishment. That God is angry. God is wrathful and God is going to kill people. So they struggle with these truths I'm sharing with you today. And I will give you a passage that, that people struggle with. Ezekiel chapter 24, verse 2, 19 through 14. And it says, God speaking about Jerusalem. The city of murderers is doomed. I myself will pile up the firewood, bring more firewood, fan the flames, cook the meat, boil away the broth, burn up the bones. Now set an empty bronze pot on the coals and get it red hot. You will, you will not be pure again until you have felt the full force of my anger. I, the Lord, have spoken the time for me to act has come man you know I I believe the inspired word I believe God spoke those words there's no question in my mind I believe he spoke those words but we have to go beyond what does the Bible say and we have to ask the next question what actually happened and what actually happened in history it's recorded in the Bible because of their refusal to follow God's warnings because of their refusal to reconcile with him to practice his methods to open their hearts because of their insistence on their idolatry and their rebellion God stopped interceding for them he stopped holding his protective hand in the way he let them go gave them their free choice at their insistence and the Babylonians came and the Babylonians burned the city and destroyed them not God well, well then why would God speak like that right Hosea 4.16 says, The Israelites are stubborn, stubborn like a mule. How can the Lord feed them like lambs in a meadow? Think about this. 
I want you to imagine you have a 10-year-old, and your 10-year-old is stubborn, stubborn like a mule. You tell him to pick up his room, he won't do it. You tell him to turn off the TV, he backtalks. He is stubborn, stubborn like a mule. You go out to one of the, the parks, the national parks here in America, and, and this particular park has steep canyon walls, and he meets, he meets another young man, and they begin playing Frisbee together, and your son is, is chasing the Frisbee, heading for the cliff. He's too far for you to reach. Do you shout to him? But he's stubborn, stubborn like a mule. He doesn't listen. He ignores you. Would you shout even with threats? If you don't stop, I will beat your bottom raw. But your child's stubborn, stubborn like a mule. And he goes over the cliff anyway. Do you then, in order to be just, have to climb down and take off your belt and beat him? If he stops, if he actually listens at that point, and he stops and doesn't go over the cliff, do you take off your belt and beat him? You see, God was dealing with people who were heading for the cliff of self-destruction. And he loved them enough, he was willing to be misunderstood even, to try and warn them to get them to stop. If your child does ignore your warnings and go over the cliff, you don't have to do anything except cry. And we read in Hosea, God speaking, Ephraim, Ephraim, how can I give you up? How can I let you go? And Jesus at Olivet, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to take you under my wings as a hen her chicks, but you would not. Oh, my son, my son, how I've longed to protect you and keep you healthy and happy, to keep you safe, but you were stubborn, stubborn like a mule and wouldn't listen. We are sick, we are dying, and we're in need of real healing, real transformation. Sin destroys. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 6, 7 and 8, a man reaps what he sows, the one who reaps to please his sinful nature. From that nature will reap destruction. Psalms thirty four twenty one says, evil shall destroy the wicked. In another translation, evil will kill the wicked. And James 1, 15 Sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. All who think that God, in order to be just, must inflict an external penalty upon the wicked that they would not otherwise reap, believe this kind of construct. Satan comes along and says, you know, I never said God wasn't powerful. He's incredibly powerful. I've said he's not good. See, if he could just get a little restraint, if he could just get his anger and his wrath under control, if he could get a little self-control and not lash out against us, if he'd just leave us alone, we could live eternally in our sin because there's nothing wrong with sin. There's something wrong with God. This is the lie. The lie that we believe that break the circle of love and trust keeps us in fear and keeps the heart closed and we don't run to God for healing and restoration. We create constructs to be protected from him. Myth number one, forgiveness means restore trust. Number two, forgiveness comes after the offender says they're sorry. Myth number three, forgiveness equals salvation. Myth number four, forgiveness, forgiving someone means what they did was okay. Number five, forgiveness leads to greater vulnerability. Number six, forgiveness means forgetting. Number seven, forgiveness means the offender gets away with it. We have been lied to lie to about God. We have all too often believed those lies and it's time to embrace the truth. God is a God who does not hold our sins against us, but who freely pardons and forgives. But more than that, who is willing to heal and restore 
all who trust him.